Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. Let's meet what the New Testament has to say about Enoch here in verse 5. Then we'll go back to the context of his story in Genesis. So here's what it says about Enoch. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. I love that. Um, Enoch was, and so far, every exploit of faith that we're going to see has a lot to do with what they're doing. And what, what an interesting one here. What was Enoch's testimony of faith? He was taken away. And we're going to look at this. So that he did not see death. And I love this, like, they're playing hide-and-seek, and they can't find him. Like, has anybody seen Enoch? He was not found. Great hiding spot. God took him, all right? There's a whole movie about this uh, starring Liam Neeson called Take... No, I'm just kidding. But for before... Notice this. For before he was taken, he had this testimony. Notice this. This was his testimony that he pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, this is such a unique um, characterization of Enoch's life and such a unique focus, uh, because this is a guy in the Bible that has very little press on him. We're going to see in a second his story in Genesis uh, 5. We're going to look um, a little bit. There's some, some verses about him in the book of Jude that says he was actually the first prophet. But when you look at all these different figures of faith in this chapter, you have these really practical things that they were noted uh, for in their faith. You know, Abraham, we're going to see, obeyed by faith. Uh, we see Sarah considered God by faith. Abraham, with his son Isaac, trusted by faith. We're going to see how Moses, he chose God by faith. Enoch is a guy who, by faith, got taken away. What is going on here? All right, so let, let's go back to the Old Testament uh, narrative that, uh, that the author of Hebrews is referring to, and we'll get a little bit more about what's going on here with this guy Enoch who was not found. Where did he go? He was taken. Let's, let's see what Genesis has to say. And so what we're going to do is look at some context here. Let's pick up you know, where we left off in Genesis with Cain and Abel. And just the world is spiraling already out of control right after the creation of things. And as the years are going on and as sinfulness is just running rampant, um, you see a wicked and perverse generation that's alive. Um, and so after Cain kills his brother Abel, uh, we see that the story picks up that Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. So let's just kind of pick up here. You have Cain the firstborn. Maybe this could be the promised uh, seed of the woman, the Messiah. Not quite. Cain kills his brother Abel. He's, he's not quite the Messiah. Um, so you, the firstborn is not the Messiah. Uh, the secondborn was just killed by the firstborn. You know, the middle child always suffers, right? And then the thirdborn, the youngest is born. It's now a guy named Seth. And so we know that there's a promise of redemption that's going to come through the line of, of Adam not clear, clearly not through, through Cain, but now through Seth. And it says, um, they, they named his son Seth, for God has appointed him another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Now just follow the narrative here. We're going to get into some genealogy. It's going to be a blast. We're going to read some genealogy in church this morning, all right? 
It says, and as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. This isn't Enoch. This is Enosh. All right? It's like Elijah, Elisha. We got Enoch and Enosh. Now, I want you to notice this verse here. One of my favorite old school preachers, Jim Cimbala, says that this is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So you have creation. Man is created for relationship with God. You have rebellion. Mankind rebels against that order. Instead of doing life trusting God and walking with God in relationship with God, man turns away. We see the results of that in, in Cain and Abel. We see the results of that as sin is going uh, just amok everywhere around. And then you have this line through Seth where God is inspiring something that he has always inspired in every generation, where the problem is the same, sin and rebellion, God begins to inspire the hearts of our first fallen fathers this desire to come back to God. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And here we are today, and if you are Assured of your salvation through Jesus, you are a part of this line. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, is what the Bible teaches. So what an interesting scripture here. Now, th this is kind of the context that's being set up. Now, when you get into chapter 5, it kind of goes back to go forward. So that's kind of what's going on here through the line of Seth um, through Adam. And then in chapter 5, you get the book of the genealogy of Adam. Uh, in that day, this is how it started, God created man, and he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and blessed them, and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years, and at the ripe young age of 130, he begot a son, you know, that's normal, he begot a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and his name was Seth. We just saw this is the time that man begins to have their hearts stirred towards relationship with the Creator to whom all of creation has turned away. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years old, and he had sons and daughters. And then it just kind of continues down the line. All the days of Adam were 930 years. There's a key three-word phrase here that we're going to see over and over again. And he died. This is like an obituary page here in Genesis 5. It's really interesting. Seth, the... Uh, Son of Adam lived 105 years and begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years. And what happened? He died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, he lived another 815 years. This is a little twist in the story. He had sons and daughters and he died. Next verse. Canaan, this is, it's going to get more and more fun, I promise, okay? Canaan lived 70 years and begot that guy. And that guy, Mahalalel, hardest part about being a preacher, pronouncing the Old Testament names. Um, Canaan lived 840 years, had sons and daughters, and as we know, the story often goes, he died. You get this next guy, our homie. He has a son named Jared, ended up going on the subway diet. It's a great story. Not a good joke. Verse 16 says, after he begot Jared, 
Mahalalel lived 830 years. He had sons and daughters as well. He died. You got Jared's line. Believe it or not, has, has sons and daughters. But there's something interesting about Jared. Jared has a son named Enoch. So we just, we're following this line and this tradition. and this, it's, it's, it's Hebrew poetry, but it's, it's literal history and narrative. It's this poetic obituary. This person was born. When they lived this long, they had this child. And it's not the only children they had. Right? It says they had other sons and daughters, but the Bible, you know, the Bible only includes that which God finds necessary for us to know. There's a lot missing, by the way, in Genesis 1 through 5 that I, I can't wait to get to heaven and watch the whole movie. Like, how long did creation really take? Like, who is there? Like, how do we go from Cain and Abel to, like, all these Lamech and all these other people? There's a, there's a lot missing, and so we trust that in Hebrew literature, um, you, we have to trust that what's included... Is, is, is what's believed to be necessary for the learner and the reader. Everything else, though it might be helpful to our American inquisitive minds, it's not relevant to the story. And the story that Genesis is telling is a story of redemption that comes through a, a line here through Seth. And we're following the line here. It's going from each person to each person, focusing on a different individual. And here we get to the great, great, great grandson of Adam, our guy Jared, he lives 162 years. He has a son named Enoch. Now, he begot Enoch. Jared lived 800 years, had sons and daughters, and as did his fathers and his fathers before him, after living their long lives, they die. Their life ends. Then we get to Enoch. Enoch lives 65 years. He begets Methuselah. You ever heard of Methuselah? Oldest man in the Bible. Lived the longest. His name, there's a couple different interpretations of Methuselah, Enoch's son's name. One of the most literal, it's like one of my favorite names in the Bible. It's man of the dart. That's awesome. Like, I'm sure it has to do with hunting and such. You know, I have a dartboard in my garage. I'm somewhat of a Methuselah myself. But um, here's Methuselah. Man of the dart is born. I love that. That's such an epic name for a son. What's your son's name? This is Dart, you know. He begot Methuselah. Now, notice the difference. Methuselah is Enoch's son. We get to Enoch, there's some different information about him. This is intentional. The narrative in Hebrew poetry is, is, is following that repetitive structure for a reason so that when we get here to verse 22, it's almost like a big interruption in the story to get our attention. Enoch stands out in this genealogy. Enoch, it tells us, he didn't just live 300 years after begetting his son Methuselah. It says Enoch walked with God. His life was characterized by walking with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. We're going to come back to that. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and now we're getting to the part that it tells us that Enoch died like all his other fathers, but no, here's what we have. This is, by the way, all we have. Again, I can't wait to watch the movie of what happened. Maybe Christopher Nolan will endeavor to do it in the meantime. That would be awesome. But at least with what we have here in Genesis 5, it tells us Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Enoch became Enoch. He just was not. Notice this, for God took him. 
standing out in his time, standing out, and even, listen, even in his genealogy, even in his family of origin, Enoch stands out. He doesn't let the generational tendencies define what his life is going to be. He stands out as someone who walks with God, and he doesn't die. Scripture tells us that God takes him. Now, let's go back to Hebrews 11 to understand now what this author is saying. By faith, Enoch was taken away it tells us so that he did not see death like the others. What an, what an incredible event. Uh, out of all these men, Enoch doesn't die. Some who, who are you know, strongly convicted of a pre-tribulation rapture theology at the, at the end of time think this could be like a, a type of that. The Christians that will be caught up and taken away without tasting death. Um, I, I don't know if that's true explicitly. That's a pretty cool inference. Uh, nonetheless, here's what we know that happened with Enoch. The homeboy doesn't die. God takes him. God takes him away. Notice this. Because he had this testimony that he pleased God. This is so cool. God and Enoch are so close. And listen closely. God in this time is so pleased with Enoch that he takes him. He's like, you're just so great. You bring so much joy to me, Enoch. I'm not going to wait for you to die. I'm going to catch you up to bring you to be with myself. I love you so much. I'm so close with you. And I'm so, here's the big idea. I'm so pleased with you. Imagine living a life like this. Imagine God being, I don't know if any of us are like, we feel this way, like we're so pleasing God that this could happen later today. You're like, this is probably going to happen this afternoon for me, you know? God is just so pleased with me that after brunch, I'm out of here. He's going to take me away. That's awesome, isn't that? God is so pleased with this guy that he takes him away. He's taken away so that he did not see death. But, but again, when we look here at Hebrews, the focus in Hebrews for Enoch, in his time, in his generation, the thing that set him apart from God's vantage was that he pleased God. That's what really motivated God's heart for what God did. He was pleasing to God. What an interesting question. Maybe you ask yourself that this morning. Do you feel like God is pleased with you? Is God pleased with you? I can start to open up a couple doors of difficulty potentially, and that's okay. We're going to allow that to happen for a moment to think about this. Is God pleased with you? Does he, does he look on at your life and like Enoch, does he go, man, I'm, I'm pleased with them? Uh, we're going to make sure we end with some solid gospel truth about that. But I want to ask this question. Um, what did Enoch do exactly by faith to please God? Like, I'm, you know, I'm getting to that age now and even like the stage of church planting and life and family where, you know, the, uh, the trap of pleasing man is wearing thinner and thinner. Is that, by the way, folks that have gone before me, does that just wear thin the older you get? All right, we need to spend time with some of the older folks, some of us younger folks who are so caught up in the trap of making man happy with us. You know, as you get older, you just kind of go, it's just temporary, it doesn't even matter. And I'm, I'm more and more asking God to grow me in a heart that just says, Lord, at the end of the day, may you be pleased with me, right? Uh, Paul says this, he says, do I seek to please man or God? He said, if I sought to please man, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. What he's saying is, instead, I'm a slave of man. If I live for the desire of pleasing man rather than God. And 
And so this is in my heart. I hope this is in your, I hope first there's a desire in your heart that says, I, I want to please God. And hopefully that's growing. Above all else, at the end of the day, I, I, want, I want to honor God. I care most about what God says. Now, the extreme of this is where you're like, I don't care what anybody says. It's like, well, chill, okay, chill, like a little bit. Like what your husband or wife says about you, thinks about you, is kind of important, okay? It's like, I don't care what they say. As long as God's happy with me, it's like, well, he'd probably be happier with you if they were a little happier with you, you know? So, so we've we got to be careful we don't go to some extreme that we, care, that we think about. Really, the truth is when God is pleased with me, everything else is going to fall into place is really the truth there. But there's this desire to primarily please God. That, that, that should be growing in the heart of a Christian. That's what sanctification is doing. So how did Enoch do it? That's, that's the question I have. Do you ever feel like pleasing God is an impossible task that you give up on before you start because of how imperfect you are? Just me? Do you ever f- fall into this trap where you're like, okay, I'd like to please God, but I can barely please people in my life who are imperfect. So how am I going to please a perfect being and a lot of us maybe today when we even ask that question are you pleasing God is God pleased with you you're like no and I've given up on that years ago there can be this like self-defeated sense of like God will never be pleased with me because of how imperfect I am but what was it about Enoch if we can learn from how he pleased God what was it about his faith what did he do that brought God joy now this is what's so amazing Genesis 24 says, he walked with God. So Hebrews is a commentary on Genesis. But Genesis is also a commentary on what we're reading in Hebrews. What is it that Enoch did that pleased God? Was it what he did for God? Was it all the the, the things he accomplished? Was it his moral behavior that was better than his neighbor? Was it his religious attendance to the religious meetings? Was it how much of the, the, the scripture and the truth of God he began to memorize? No, the, the Bible says that the primary and singular thing in Enoch's life that brought God pleasure was that he just walked with God. Now, that word and that language, walking with God, walking with God, it's, it's a, a term uh, that, that's used to describe um, relational communion, unity, and harmony. The idea here is that he knew the Lord personally, just as two companions walk together. I mean, if you see two individuals walking together, you're going to assume relationship. If it's a crowd of people and you look over and there is two friends, they're walking together. They're walking with one another. It speaks of relationship or, or even a husband and a wife. It speaks of relationship when they're literally physically walking together. Uh, probably the most meaningful for me as a dad is seeing a father and their children, or a father and their son or daughter walking together. Just them walking together is preaching a sermon about their relationship. And so it says about Enoch that in the same way, he had a relationship with God. He walked with God. And let me say, this is what pleased God. Um, I don't know about for you, but I know for me that I can often make God a lot harder to please than he is. We can all do this. We make God this like taskmaster who is impossible to satisfy. He's impossible to make happy. There's this long list of these do's and don'ts. And if I perform these feats, if I do these things, God will be overjoyed with me. He will be pleased with me. We can make God to be someone that he's not. 
We make him harder to please than he really is. And just here with, with Enoch, we get this incredible description of God's heart. And maybe this is what has, has, has been affecting your relationship with God lately, is you've forgotten that how God is most pleased with you is just you knowing him. Like, come to me. Come walk with me. I'm, I'm like, listen, it's not about your performance. Like, stop making it about things and, and making me out to be things that I'm not. Come walk with me. You know, we don't just see this in Enoch or in the New Testament. We see this especially in Israel's history. The people, people of God throughout the ages who were constantly, like, spun out of a healthy understanding of how to please God. Uh, and, th- and this is, by the way, this goes all the way back to the beginning. Like even creation, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and, and he gives them one commandment, one commandment to follow that's going to display their trust in him. Like he's trusting them with creation. Take care of it. Bring it forward. But for a partnership to happen, trust has to be mutual. And so now I want you to trust me as well. And then when, when Eve is tempted and uh, the serpent asks Eve, you know, what did God say to you? What did God say to you about this tree? And she says, God said that we can't even touch it unless, and if we do, we'll die. Which, like, God never said that. But, but like, you know, this is what our sinful hearts like to do. We, we, we tend to make God out to be this, this very difficult, impossible-to-please taskmaster that just overloads our lives with all these rules and all these burdens. And this is, like... Sin is not the only way to wander away from God. Most of, most of the time, the reason why we fall into a life that's moving us away from God is because we've created some sort of legalistic structure in our relationship with God that's just impossible to enjoy. Like, who wants to enjoy a relationship that's just based on rule-keeping, just based on law-keeping, just, just based on measuring up, and the person is only as pleased as your performance and so we can do that with God. And we, can, we, we begin to distance ourselves from someone who doesn't even exist. This like overbearing taskmaster. And this was also the history of, of Israel. This is humanity throughout the ages. And so God calls the people unto himself. God's heart has always been stirring people to come to him in relationship, to walk with him. Men like Seth and Enosh and Enoch calling these men to call upon him and to know him and walk with him. He forms a people out of Israel to be his prized possession, to be a light to the world around them of of what humanity was created for, intimacy and relationship with God. And despite sin, which separates us from that relationship, God goes through all means necessary to make sure that that there's a way that can be paved for sinful man to to still be connected to God in relationship. And so Israel gets this incredible opportunity, and even still they continually wander from God's heart. And so there's this interesting section of Scripture in the book of Micah. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen if you'd like to. You are welcome to, okay? Micah 6. God's not going to be, like, extra pleased with you, okay, if you do. All right. Micah 6. We, we studied the book of Micah last year in our um, Minor Prophets series, Majoring in the Minors. That was the title of the series. And, and it's an interesting case here where the Lord is, like, calling Israel to the stand. He, he's calling them to testify uh, before him. Or rather, he's testifying, excuse me, against them. He's testifying against his people for what they've made the relationship with God to be, what they've, what they've twisted it and have corrupted it to be. And so God says this, hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains. I love this. So, so God is pleading his case, and the judge and jury are the mountains. It's just so, so poetic and beautiful. And let the hills hear your voice. Hear O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. 
And then God says this, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What in your life, what lies have so filled your head that you have been led to believe that God has somehow sinned against you? And you've distanced yourself from him. You, you, the, the root issue here is their theology, their understanding of God is all thwarted. He's like, what have I done for you? And how have I wearied you? What negative things have I done to you? How have I exhausted you? You ever felt that way? Just exhausted spiritually? We look at God and we can get bitter with God. Like, God, why have you exhausted me? And God's like, tell me exactly how I've done that. He says, you know what? Testify against me. I'm calling you to the stand and I want you to tell me how have I, what have I done negatively to hurt you? What have I done negatively to exhaust you? And then God begins to expound on this idea about what he has done to them and for them, and it's not their harm. It's only to help them. Can I tell you this? Whatever has happened to you, whatever evil and difficult thing that has occurred in your life, one of the greatest lies of the enemy is to cause you in some way to trace that line back to God, to think that he was your oppressor, to think that he was the one who wounded you and hurt you. God's heart is only always good. And what he does is only always good. He goes, how have I hurt you? No, listen, this is who God is. God goes, this is what I've done for you. If we want to get into what I've done in your life, here's what I've done. I've brought you up from the land of Egypt. When you were a people that had no strength, when you were stuck in slavery, I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I'm your redeemer, not your oppressor. And I sent you, I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I've taken care of you. God is reminding them of the truth of who he is to them. Whatever's become mixed up in their minds because of sin and evil in this world, God is setting it straight. Look what I've done for you. You've become, Israel at this point, they're like, I'm over God. I'm over following him. I'm over walking with him. That's the idea. I don't want to walk with him like Enoch did anymore. And part of this is because they made God out to be who he's not. He's reminding him of his heart and his goodness. And then he's got to clarify a few things about them. He says, oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, what Balaam, the son of Beor, asked him from Acacia Grove to Gil Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. He's like, remember, hold on, stop for a second. There's a really important word that's used here. There's a lot of big words like Balak, Moab. You're like, the Bernstein Bayers, what's going on right now? So like, there could be a lot of confusion, but let's just simplify what the, the single word that God is saying right now. Stop and remember for a second. That's what he's saying. Use your minds. Remember what's true. Stop. Think. Remember. Tim Keller says, you know, a lot of times we think that the biggest problem with the world and with Christians is that we think too much, you know? And Tim Keller says, no, the problem is Christians think too little. We don't think enough about what's true. We've got to stop and just remember who God has been and what he said. And specifically, with what shall I come before the Lord? Like, who is this God, and how does he want to be worshipped? Who is he? What is he like? How do I please him? Is he this taskmaster that's difficult to, to bring, joy, bring joy to? He's like, remember what I desire. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? He's speaking of the religious duty. God's like, is that, you really think that doing religious things at the end of the day is all I'm happy with? God, I did religious things. I put that in my Instagram bio, you know. 
I wore my Christian t-shirt, you know, I wore my Christian wristband, I went to church, you know, I showed up, I posted a picture of my devotions, God, I'm not ashamed, I've confessed you before man. And God's like, what are you doing just trying to perform your way into my joy? What, what have you made this to be? That, that I'm overjoyed with your burnt offerings, your reluctant sacrifices, as if that's what gives my heart joy. Listen, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Some of us, by the way, are stuck in this mindset that God will finally be pleased with me when I bring him more. I brought him hundreds of sacrifices, but one day God will be as pleased with me as he is with them and Enoch when I bring him a thousand offerings. Like we think that, that God is like insatiable almost. And we get stuck in this mode. It's like I only pray this many hours a day, not this many hours a day. You know, I got a, a thousand, I need a thousand offerings, then God will love me and accept me. What about 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of the body for the sin of my soul? Like, what is God like and what is he after? He's calling Israel to remember, and here's what he says in verse 8. Many of you know this verse. He has shown you. Stop for a second. What has God showed me about himself and what do I need to remember? He has shown me, oh man, what is good. He has shown us how to please him. He has showed us what he requires of us. And, and we can make it to be this 10,000 long task list. We can make God out to be this big taskmaster. But he goes, let me just bring it down to my heart. I'll give you three simple things that bring me joy, that bring me pleasure, to do justly. I care about how you treat people you don't think you need. I care about that. I care about how you treat people you don't think you need care about that. Just doing religious duties and neglecting the poor, neglecting that person that you can't really gain anything. God cares about how we treat our neighbor. That we would love mercy. That we would be so convincing. Our message about God's love and grace and God's like, let that so penetrate your life that you actually as a Christian start to look like the very mercy you describe. You start to embody the very grace that you say is worth everything. Love mercy so much so that you become it. And then some have said that this summarizes all of it. Walk humbly with me. It's not complicated. Whatever you and I have, can make and have made this Christian thing out to be, especially in a time like today, all God wants us to do is to stop and think and ask, does what I'm thinking about God and who he is and my life and what's happened, even my frustrations maybe with the Lord, wherever those, whatever those are, I need to stop and think about how does that align with what God has showed me? How does that align with what's true about God? Because when I look into God's word, I'm reminded he's not this taskmaster. He's a loving father that just wants to be known by his kids. He's like, what have I showed you? Here, here it is. Walk humbly with me. Israel, I didn't save you, okay? God didn't save us. God doesn't change our lives because he needs servants. Like, man, I just, there's so much more I could get done in this world if I had some redeemed people to delegate to. 
I need some people to delegate. I'm, you know, I'm a big delegator. And so uh, I just, who can I, I need, ser- listen, if, God's, you know, if God needed servants, he would dispatch the thousands of millions of heavenly hosts that he had to do his bidding. That was, that's not why he saved us. God needs my service. Oh, you know what God needs is God needs scholars. That's, what, that's what's missing in this world. Not enough geniuses like me, okay? Not enough scholars, people that can know the Bible, that can know more than you know and everyone else knows, that can just kind of stand out as a knowledgeable person. In, in the book of James, there's this verse. It's like, yeah, the um, spiritual beings, the evil ones, they're smarter than you. They, they know the things about God that you've learned. Like, God, someone who's omniscient is not impressed with a minutia of knowledge. We know that. That's who God is. God contains all knowledge. We, we should know what's true, but that's not what God is looking for. If, if more people can contain my information, God doesn't save us to be these servants that he's lacking or, or he needs scholars. God saves us, the Bible says, so that we could be sons and daughters. God saves us to be redeemed and reconciled and returned back to what you and I were actually created for in the beginning. That, that, that thread that we see start to weave through Genesis, that though our tendency is to wander, we are stirred back to relationship with this God who loves us, to know him and what he requires and what he's created us for is to walk humbly with him, to, to walk with him. And so this is Enoch. Enoch has this testimony as being one who pleases God, not with religious duty, not with all that he could do, but here's how you and I, at the end of the day, here's how we can most please God. We remember his heart. We remember what he's like. And we remind ourselves of what he's requiring. Come and know me. Come walk with me. You know, God's will for your life today is to know him deeper. It's to walk with him more personally. His greatest joy, it just, it arises greatly out of you walking with him and knowing him. So so back to that question, is God pleased with you? Another question is, are you walking with him? What have you made this out to be, and are you walking with your God? Um, I thought these could help, and I'll close with, with this. Um, when I think about walking with God, I think another important question about this is, is just simply, what does walking with God entail? Maybe we're at this point now where we're like, yeah, I, I need to, and I want to come back to the place of, of simply walking with Jesus. And, and what does that entail? What does it actually look like for me to be someone who pleases God by walking with him? And and I'll just have you write down these four things. I think these are a helpful start. Walking with God entails these four things. It entails first desire. It entails direction. Walking with God like Enoch did entails discipline. And we see also modeled beautifully in the life of Enoch. Walking with God, it involves destiny. Unless you get too, you know, unless you get too caught up or stumbled by the word destiny. It's a very, you know, Disney world and prosperity preaching word, but um, destiny is another way to say your destination, where you're ending up, okay? Walking with God involves desire, direction, discipline, and destiny, and I think you see all four of these things in the life of Enoch. You certainly see desire, desire. There's something like in Seth's heart, in Enosh's heart, there was something about desire that occurred in Enoch's life, and it's interesting, verse 22 of chapter, uh, uh, chapter 5 of Genesis actually tells us that Enoch's desire to start to walk with God, it occurred right after 
his son was born. Isn't that interesting? By the way, I've seen this. I've seen boys be forced into manhood, go from sons to fathers, and there's something about becoming a father that makes you go, um, how I'm walking is now affecting someone else. And so I need to tether myself to my father. I need to walk with God because of the effect that it has on generations to come. That, that, it's interesting that right when Methuselah is born, right when the man of the dark comes into the picture, Enoch suddenly goes, I need to walk with God. Now something happened when Methuselah was born. There was something in Enoch's heart where a desire to walk with God stepped into play. I think that could be one of it is. Maybe one of the things that it is. Maybe it's this, like, by the way, this is a good thing. Um, it's helpful in life to have sobering reminders of what you ought to do. You know, I think it's, we can sometimes overreact in the Christian faith. We're like, oh, we don't want it to be about legalism, so only do what you want. Christianity is about wanting. It's not what you get to do or what you have to do. It's what you get to do and want to do. And it's like, yeah, and sometimes you should follow God because you ought to. It's like, I don't really feel like serving my family today. You know, I'm, I'm only going to do it out of wanting, and I don't really want it today. You know, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know, and fake it. It's like, no, that's not being a hypocrite. The Bible says that's being a child. Because when I became a man, I put away childish things, and, and, you know, a boy does what he wants to do. A man does what he ought to do, what he has to do, the right thing. And so there could be that. In Enoch's heart, this like, I, I, I ought to follow God. I ought to walk with him. But listen, I want to say I'm convinced that Enoch's desire to walk with God had to come from something so much more than what he ought to do. We need that. But, but the Bible says about Enoch that he walked with God, listen to this, 300 years. That's like a mentor to have in your life. It's like, how long have you walked with the Lord? It's like, yeah, you know, 300 years. It's like, You've got a lot to teach me, I'm sure. You've seen. Now, that sort of, listen, that sort of longevity of desire, that sort of, of lifelong experience, that requires something greater than have-tos. You know, I believe that in Enoch's time, what you're having is you're having through God showing up in a lot of different ways prophetically, even after the fall, God showing up, stirring hearts to follow him. Uh, something really interesting at this time, I want you to think about this, Adam is still alive. This is the seventh generation from Adam. And based on Adam's age, I think Adam's like 600-something years old at this time. You know, he's just, just over the hill. You know, just over the midlife crisis time, around 600-something, you know. But his great-great-great-great-grandfather is in the picture. Four greats. And I wonder if, if as... His son is born, Enoch. He's thinking about his life. He's like, what kind of life am I going to lead? How am I going to walk? Am I going to know God or not? Am I going to be like the rest of the generation of men who just live and die? They live to accumulate as much as possible, and then they have to pass it on to people you know, that they don't want to have it, I guess. And I wonder if there's a point where Enoch has a conversation with Adam. You know, hey, Great, 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 Peppy, you know. And Adam, can you just tell me what was it like walking with God? What was it like knowing him in such an up-close and personal way? And you imagine Adam just starts to kind of have like his heart broken and 
Maybe there's the weight of everything upon him and tears fill his eyes and, and he just describes how much better God is than everything and anything. How the creator was always meant to be the prize of creation. You wonder if, if Enoch begins to have this vision of the goodness of God draw his heart towards the Lord. In fact, I'm convinced of this because remember Hebrews. Hebrews said about Enoch that his faith was displayed in how he believed that God is and that God was a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Believing these things, that God is who he says he is and that at his very core he is good and faithful and that he rewards those who seek him, I truly believe that is the only confidence that will sustain a long-term relationship with God. Constantly coming back to who God is and how good he is. This is a God who still even, like, the creation whole project thing has gone pretty bad. And God is still pursuing relationship with man. And so Enoch still has this desire to walk with God. Um, you know, the scripture describes, even in the New Testament, how this is the same for us. In 1 John, the Bible says that we love God. Because, and this is the only because to love God, because he first loves us. So the language of scripture is, is that God is the, always the initiator. He's the good initiator. In his goodness, even after we rebel, he initiates relationship with man in his goodness and love, rewarding those who seek him. Man, in scripture, is always the responder. That's huge. Like, I wonder if for, for some of us, we've made ourselves the initiator in relationship with God. We're just trying to initiate something, trying to, you know, i got to pick up this relationship with God thing again. i really got to work my way back into It's like, no, no, the language of Scripture is that we love God because of his first love, his first love, which initiates and, and we respond. There's desire. So th this is such a key part of walking with God. If all, your, if all your relationship with God is based on is duty, you will only get so far. There's got to be a sustaining force of his love and his goodness that I believe Enoch got a taste of that propels you. Like, and also just simply, um, I've never walked with someone 300 years before. Um, I haven't had, a, had enough time to do it. Um, but I've walked with friends for a long period of time. And there's just a truth to longevity being tied to enjoyment. Do you know what I mean? Like, some of us, we are so stuck in just enduring the Christian life, we don't know how to enjoy because we forget who God is. And there's just something about desire that's fueled by actually enjoying who God really is. And this is true of all relationships. You know, you can only endure a relationship you don't enjoy for so long. And uh, there's something about the heart of enjoyment that really brings something more sustainable. Uh, it's also going to entail direction. When you walk with God, it entails desire that he provokes by his love, but also direction so, so to, you know, physically, to walk with someone is to go wherever they're going, all right? Like, hey, I'm going to walk with you to your car, okay? And they start walking, you start walking this way, all right? It's like, are you going to walk with me or not, okay? So, so to walk with someone is it's to go the same direction that they're going. And this is true of God as, as well, uh, going in his same way that he's leading. In Amos chapter 3, there's this interesting verse where God says to Israel, can two walk together, I love this, unless they are agreed? This is a foundational principle to any relationship. You ever, you ever, okay, gone on a road trip or driven somewhere with someone and you guys disagreed about how to get there? 
And here's, the, here's where it gets really spicy. The navigator is in the passenger seat, and you're behind the wheel. And you're like, do I trust you or not? Okay, like, am I going to go the way I think we should go, or am I going to go the way you think we should go? And so agreement, like to get to the destination for a healthy relationship, by the way, like in relation, human relationship, you know, there's, always, there's never perfect alignment. If you're like, you know, if you're waiting to get married because you're waiting for a perfect, the person that you perfectly agree with and perfectly agrees with you, like, you're, you're going to be single forever, okay? Um, like, half the time, I barely agree with myself, you know what I'm saying? It's so like agreeing with you, that's impossible, all right? So, so, so in human relationships, there's compromise and stuff, but, but God is looking on at his people, and he's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not like you. I'm not man. This isn't about, like, hey, God, like, I want to walk with you, but... God, I just, um, I just disagree with you about some things, about where, where you, you say we should be going and how we should be living. And, you know, I just thought maybe we could have a conversation. And I just think, I think, God, your views are a little ancient. That's what I think. I think that you might need to just think about, just think again. Did you really think about kind of your, your, your ethic of sexuality and, and just kind of your, your view of the good life? Maybe it was primitive. Like, I would just consider, you know, reading an article from this website or something, and getting a new, you know, maybe just some fresh wind, some modern wind in your ancient perspective. Like, and this is just not, God, is, God looks on Israel, he's like, that's not how this works. Walking with God means this. I don't, I don't simply um, start this process of mutual agreement, but I come under his lordship and his way. I, w- I walk with him. I think of Evie the other day. Uh, just yesterday, we were at the beach. If you can't tell, my, I'm, I look like a tomato. Um, Yesterday, we were at Red Reef. There's like a bunch of new little reef rock snorkel sections. It's a, um, I'm like tempted to tell people about it because of how crowded it'll get. I just told you. Um, and we, we, were, we were snorkeling at the rocks, and there was a little bit of a current. And so we, we were there, and, and you know, poor Diane and Rudy showed up for a nice Saturday beach day with the paddle boards. And within seconds, their paddle boards were overrun with six little girls. Just, I'm so sorry about that. Um, but, but at one point, because of the current, I was like, Evie, let's walk down the beach. you got to come this way. We're going to go north, and we're going to snorkel south so that we're not, you know, swimming against the current. And she, like, didn't get it. She's like, no, Dad, like, I don't want to go that far, and that's going to be such a far swim. And there had to come a point where I said, Evie, you have to trust me. I've been here before. I know where I'm going. Walk with me. Direction is central to walking with God. Jesus invites us. He invited the disciples to come follow his way and to trust that his way at the end is going to be better than any other way that they can conjure up. Uh, walking with God entails, I want to say this is so important, it entails discipline. Desire without discipline will not give you the desired result that you're intending for, will it? Like, I desire to get fit. I desire to walk with God. Well, there's going to need to be discipline. I love this about Enoch, that he walked with God. It was a 300-year lifelong experience. And I want to say this. um, If walking with God is going to be a lifelong experience for you, it must be a daily discipline. If walking with God, if if you're going to be... Now, what's great about Enoch is he didn't just start walking with God. He kept walking with God. This wasn't an event. For, for a lot of us, and a lot of people I've seen, it's like walking with God. It's this event. It's this time. It's this season in life. But if walking with God is going to be a lifelong experience, it must also be a daily discipline. And here's why. Because we don't naturally walk with God. There's a reason for this. The scripture says we're at war with the world. 
We're at war with the flesh. We're at war with even the devil, with a spiritual enemy. And so our tendency is not to walk with God. Our natural tendency is to walk away. It is. Um, I, I love the discipline described in Galatians chapter 5. Look at what it says. Galatians 5 says in the ESV, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Isn't that great language? Like, don't just assume that through a little bit of church attendance, through, you know, organizing my life around a moral direction, that, that I'm going to end up in this deep and intimate relationship with God, close to the heart of God. Desire is important. Trusting the direction is important. At the end of the day, it comes down to, are you choosing to walk with God? Are you organizing your life around this discipline? Is there a spiritual practice where you are recognizing that your tendency isn't to stay in step with God? But I need to discipline my life. I found when it comes to being in step with God that I, I'm sure you've related to this too, that, you know, this language, right? Being in step with him, walking with him, the idea of this is like, it means you've got to go his speed, right? His pace. And when I think about my life, I have a tendency to either get too far ahead. You ever felt that? Like, God, I'm not walking with you because I'm just so consumed with my activity for you. I'm so far ahead. I'm caught up in so much busyness. I need to, what? Slow down. Go the same pace. It's like when I take all the kids for a bike ride, Judah's 20 miles ahead. Evie's a couple miles behind. Not miles. That's horrible. I should go to jail if that's true. But um, feet, okay? Maybe yards, okay? But and there's this balance of, okay, Judah, come, you got to slow down. You're, you're too far ahead. Come walk with me. Come ride with me. I, I'm, it's the sweet spot is, is, is cruising with dad. And then for other of us, we're, we're, we're lagging behind, you know. And God's like, come on, catch up. I'm waiting for you. I'm here. Maybe you, you, you've set down your passion. Maybe you've been living a life of spiritual laziness and apathy. And you got to catch up to the Lord. He wants to walk with you. So whether slow down or catch up, and I'll invite the band up, we'll close here with, with destiny. Um, at the end of the day, what, what's, what, what walking with God entails, we see this with Enoch, the way that God is pleased with us, it, it involves a desire, it involves trusting God's direction. It's got to involve, if it's going to be a lifelong experience, it has to involve daily discipline, making sure we are staying in step with him, slowing down, or, or whatever we need to do, maybe catching up if we're lagging behind. Um, but the hope of walking with God as seen in the life of Enoch is ultimately our destiny. When God says, come follow me, when Jesus says, come follow me, the reason why we say, okay, the reason why we answer that with, yes, Lord, I will, is, listen, there has to be this belief about where he's going to take me. There's a destination ahead of all of us, right? Um, if we were in this genealogy, we could ourselves, as a sense, be, be, be sobered by the fact that um, we, too, have a life that's a vapor. It's here for a moment, then it passes away. And just as we have a birth date, there's going to be a death date. That's our destiny. If you grew up in youth group, you heard the saying, 10 out of 10 people die. Which, by the way, isn't true if you count Enoch. Okay. <laughs> but Enoch stands out in this narrative of lives that, listen, were nothing more than the extent of the life. That was it. 
born and die. I mean, is that really what your life is for, to be born and then to die? Is that it? Jesus says, follow me. Follow me into life beyond death, is what Jesus says. You know, when Jesus is leaving, his disciples are getting discouraged because of his death on the cross. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And I love this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now, I love that it's the same word described as, as he, in Hebrews about Enoch. And I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. What Jesus promises the disciples as the destiny and the hope of the end of their lives is the same thing that God gave Enoch, which was the reward of those who diligently seek him. What is that? It's God himself. Jesus says, I'm coming for you. What you were created for was me. And in the meantime, you're walking by faith, but there's a day coming that you will receive the full reward of your faith. Jesus says, I'm going to take you unto myself. Now, now the disciples, we know, they, they went on to die. They went on to give their lives. But because there was hope beyond the end of life, because the reward of their life was not within their life, but it was the God of their life, they were able to live full throttle for the Lord. They, they had, a, they had their, their destiny in mind, which was the prize of Jesus. To have him is to have everything. Trusting that he's going to receive me, just like Enoch, he's going to take me to himself. For those that are in Jesus, you know, this is getting to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, which invades this really hard space, this bad space that says, because of sin, there's this thing called death. Death. And death is, it's not just the opposite of life, it's the absence of life. Death is the lack of life. When you look in scripture, you see death, it takes on a few different forms. For all have sinned, and therefore death has reigned to all of us. Death is the absence first of spiritual life. That's what sin has caused us. We're, we're born, the Bible says we're born in sin, dead in our sin. And then beyond that, there's this thing called physical death, where we are separated from our loved ones physically. And, you know, the scripture describes even a state that we are in post-death without Jesus, which is eternal death and separation from God. See, the problem is death. Just like Enoch's fathers and the ones after him, the thing that faces each of us is, what am I doing with my life that is going to end one day? And what am I going to do with, with death? What am I going to do with the, the lack of life that's ahead of me? And, and Jesus comes into the scene, and this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes upon himself the death that we have brought into this world. He goes into the grave, and he overcomes death with life. And he promises whoever would call upon him, whether you feel that you're a sinner or a saint, you need the life of Jesus to fill your own. You call upon him, just like Enoch did, just like Enoch did. And the Bible says, if you call upon the Lord, if you look to Jesus who became sin on the cross for you and I, the Bible says life is available to you, eternal life. Life now and life in the age to come, the reward of Jesus. And so, man, I pray that each person here today is 
stirred to step a little closer to walking with God, to, to walking with him intimately, knowing that that's the pathway to pleasing him. And so wherever you may be in that, I want you to know first that God is pleased with you through his son, Jesus, that he's pleased with you through the gospel of Jesus and what Christ has accomplished for you. And he's calling you to know him and to walk with him just as Enoch did. Hey, here's how we're going to close. We're going to play this song that we sung on the way in. It's called New Wine. And it's an invitation for new things to break into our lives. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I just need, I need new. I need some new desire. I need some new direction. I need some new discipline. I need maybe some new destination and destiny for where I'm headed. Well, here's a chance for us to stir our hearts with that invitational posture that says, God, bring your newness into my life.